Thank you for stopping by at the Movie Marquee. Our podcast reviews well-known movies and contains spoilers. The podcast may contain mature subject matter and mature language. Listener discretion is advised. Enjoy the show. Quiet on set. Places, everybody. Welcome everyone to the Movie Marquee. Today's showing will be the 2010 Martin Scorsese psychological thriller, Shutter Island. With me today is Ken. You're smarter than you look, Ted. That's probably not a good thing. And of course, Ted. Wounds can create monsters, and you are wounded, Ken. And wouldn't you agree, when you see a monster, you must stop it? Well, of course the audience agrees, and I agree, and of course I'm Eric. Crazy people, they're the perfect subjects. They talk and nobody listens, but hopefully you're all listening. <laughs> and welcome, everybody. Ted, let's talk about the particulars of Shutter Island. What do you got? Shutter Island is a Paramount Pictures release. It was released February of 2010. It's directed Martin Scorsese. It was written by Leda Caligaritis, based on the novel by Dennis Lehane. It has a running time of two hours and 18 minutes. It was budgeted at $80 million, and it has a worldwide gross of $294 million. It is starring Leonardo DiCaprio as Teddy Daniels, Mark Ruffalo as Chuck, Sir Ben Kingsley as Dr. John Cawley, Emily Mortimer, the nurse portraying Rachel Solando, Max von Sydow as Jeremiah Nehring, Michelle Williams as Dolores Chanel, Patricia Clarkson as Rachel Solando, Jackie Earl Haley as George Noyce, and Ted Levine as the warden. Awesome. What did the critics think of Shutter Island, Ted? When we go to our tomato meter, it ranks at a 68% on the tomato meter with a 77% audience score. It seems like to me when I was going through the different critics, it looks like our major critics are kind of split down the middle. We'll start with the negative reviews. Rex Reed from the New York Observer. He said, how could this many talented people get so utterly, confoundingly messed up? How could a director considered such an icon make so much money and demonstrate so little control? So Rex Reed gave it a score of two and a half out of four. A.O. Scott from the New York Times, who was a regular on At the Movies after Roger Ebert left, he gave it a score of two out of five. Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune said that Shutter Island is hysterical in the clinical and cinematic senses, followed by plotting just when a pot-boiling contraption cannot afford to be. He scored it two out of four. Anne Hornaday from the Washington Post said, As Shutter Island proceeds, mostly as a series of speeches and set pieces, what is meant to be mysterious and unsettling becomes just plain incomprehensible. She gave it one of the lowest scores, a one and a half out of four. But then on the positive side, we have Peter Travers of Rolling Stone gave the movie a three and a half out of four. Richard Roper from the Chicago Sun-Times via his website, richardroper.com, said one of DiCaprio's best performances in an unforgettable 
unforgettable psychological jigsaw puzzle. He gave it a score of four and a half out of five. John Anderson of the Wall Street Journal said, Not since Raging Bull has Mr. Scorsese so brazenly married brutality to beauty. Not since Kundun has one of his films felt so aspirational. It's a positive review. Betsy Sharkey of the Los Angeles Sun-Times said, In Shutter Island, director Martin Scorsese has created a divinely dark and devious brain tease of a movie in the best noir tradition. Gave it a score of 4 out of 5. And then, of course, we come to our friend and muse, Roger Ebert, from the Chicago Sun-Times. He said, There's the possibility that the escaped woman might be lurking in a cave on a cliff or hiding in a lighthouse. Both involve hazardous terrain to negotiate above vertiginous falls to waves pounding on the rocks below. A possible hurricane is approaching. Light leaks out of the sky. The wind sounds mournful. It is, as they say, a dark and stormy night. And that's what the movie is about. Atmosphere. Ominous portents. The erosion of Teddy's confidence and even his identity. It's all done with flawless directional command. Scorsese has fear to evoke and he does it with many notes. He gave it a score of three and a half out of four. There is one other section from his review. When I read it, it made me miss Roger Ebert even more because of how he describes things is is just great as far as how he was a writer. And the section that I found that really got me was he wrote, Scorsese the craftsman chips away at reality piece by piece. Flashbacks suggest Teddy's traumas in the decades since World War II. That war, its prologue and aftermath, supplied the dark undercurrent of classic film noir. The term post-traumatic shock syndrome was not then in use, but its symptoms could be seen in men attempting to look confident in their facades of unstylized suits, subdued ties, heavy smoking, and fedoras pulled low against the rain. DiCaprio and Ruffalo both affect this look, but DiCaprio makes it seem like a hopeful disguise. Oh no, there's something about the way he wrote that. It made me miss his reviews and his writing even more. I think we all miss Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel. I mean, those guys together were just incredible in reviewing movies, and they're at the movies program. I remember watching that when I was younger, and I, oh yeah, I loved it. I mean, hell, most of the stuff they, (laughs) most of the stuff they reviewed, I've never ever seen before, even at that time. They were the go-to. I mean, Mm -hmm. movie producers, directors, they really took their reviews seriously as the go-to, whether or not they really liked it or they really hated it. For example, just some of the reviews you read, man, these people are just using these big ten dollars words that hell we can't even pronounce right, which right. drives me insane roger ebert really goes to the heart of the review and really puts it in words that you can dissect and really put images in your mind of the movie and that was a good right. review by him he made being a film critic accessible to the masses there's a lot to be said for that writing and gene siskel did the same thing you know most of that was really done before internet that's all mm-hmm. pre-internet stuff oh yeah you don't have you know all these tom dick and harry's on the internet right. they're reviewing movies kind of like what we're doing but that's here <laughs> yeah exactly. um, that are really given their two cents i mean people in that era really went to those guys ted was the first time you saw this one my wife and i went to see it opening weekend wow yeah so oh. february of, of 2010 she's a huge horror movie fan that's right up my alley and of course you start talking martin scorsese and ben kingsley and max von Sydow. it's must opening weekend see type of yeah. uh, movies and DiCaprio was at just top of his uh, game at that point. I mean, the guy couldn't make a bad movie. 
Right. And I think this thing, if I remember reading it, opened uh, number one. And then the second week, it was also number one. So mm-hmm. it was a big money waker for those uh, first two weeks. What about you, Ken? When's the first time you saw it? First time I saw it was in the theater. Wow. It was one of those movies where it was kind of word of mouth that Scorsese is psychological thrillers out. I like those type of movies as well. This is more my wheelhouse than his other movies that he has done. And this movie actually financially was his biggest success until The Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah, it was his biggie. Me, unfortunately, I can't go the same direction as you guys. I saw this one on DVD, man. I rented it. Loved it. We'll see if I still love it after our reviews coming up. Wish I would have saw this one in the movie. It'd probably been really cool on the big screen. Yeah, it was really neat to see it with a crowd, especially the end. Just out of curiosity, you saw it opening weekend, Ted, so I'm sure it was packed, right? (laughs) Yeah, it was was packed. What about you, Ken? Was it packed in the theater? Not as much. I actually went Uh to see it when I was probably more like four or five weeks into it. Okay. Very few movies have I seen opening weekend. There's only maybe a handful most of the time, honestly. I wait for them to come on DVD, Blu-ray, digital release now, big popular thing. I wish I would have seen these things in the movies more. Actually, now that you mention it, Eric, I actually, when I did see this, it wasn't like fourth or fifth. It was a second run, like a dollar, two dollar theater, the cheaper theaters when I saw it. Yeah. Well, movies are expensive. We all know that. I kind of held out my dollar for those uh, real movies that I, I wanted to see first run. The last one I've seen, just to go off the subject for a second, was the most recent incarnation of A Star is Born. I saw that in the theater the day it opened. I was prepping for that thing for six months for that bad boy to open. Awesome movie. So, Ken, let's talk about the plot. Let's talk about Island. the plot. What? Let's talk about the plot. We've talked about everything else. Tell me about the plot of Shutter Island. There is no plot. No, there is a plot. So, <laughs> oh, Shutter major Island. Major spoiler alerts. No, no plot. plot, kids. It's a no. movie about nothing. All right. In 1954, U.S. Marshal Eddie Teddy Daniels and his new partner Chuck traveled to Ashcliffe Hospital for the criminally insane on Shutter Island in the Boston Harbor. They are investigating the disappearance of a patient, Rachel Solando, who is incarcerated for drowning her three children. Their only clue is a cryptic note found hidden in Rachel's room, the Law of Four, who is 67. The two men arrive just before a massive storm, preventing their return to the mainland for a few days. Teddy and Chuck find the staff confrontational and uncooperative. Lead psychiatrist John Cawley refuses to turn over records, and they learn that Rachel's doctor, Lester Sheehan, left the island on vacation immediately after Rachel disappeared, preventing them from interrogating him. They were told that Ward C, one of three, is reserved for the most severely disturbed patients and is off-limits along with the lighthouse, which has already been searched. While being interviewed, one patient writes the word run in Teddy's notepad. Teddy starts to have migraine headaches from the hospital's atmosphere and has walking visions of his experiences as a U.S. Army soldier, which includes the killing of many enemy guards. He has disturbing dreams of his wife, who was killed in a fire set by arsonist Andrew Laetus. In one instance, she tells Teddy that Rachel is still on the island, as is Laetus. Teddy later explains to Chuck that locating Laetus was his motive for taking the case. Teddy and Chuck find that Rachel has resurfaced with no explanation, prompting them to break into the restricted Ward C. Teddy encounters George Noyce, a patient in solitary confinement. Noyce warns that everyone else on the island, including Chuck, is playing an elaborate game designed for Teddy. Teddy regroups with Chuck and climbs the cliffs towards the lighthouse. 
They become separated, and Teddy later sees what he believes to be Chuck's body on the rocks below. By the time he climbs down, the body has disappeared, but he finds a cave where he discovers a woman in hiding, who claims to be the real Rachel Solando. She states that she is a former psychiatrist at the hospital, who discovered the experiments with psychotropic medication and transorbital lobotomy, in an attempt to develop mind control techniques. Before she could report her findings to the authorities, she was forcibly committed as a patient. Teddy returns to the hospital but finds no evidence of Chuck ever being there. Convinced Chuck was taken to the lighthouse, Teddy breaks in only to discover Kali waiting for him. Kali explains that Teddy is actually Laetus, their most dangerous patient, incarcerated in Ward C for murdering his manic depressive wife after she drowned their children. Daniels and Rachel are anagrams of Laetus and his wife, and the little girl from Laetus's recurring dreams is his daughter. It is discovered it was Andrew who attacked Noise two weeks earlier for calling him Laetus. According to Kali, the events of the past several days have been designed to cure Andrew's conspiracy-laden insanity by allowing him to play out the role of Teddy Daniels. The hospital staff were part of the test, including Sheehan posing as Chuck and as and a nurse posing as Rachel. Andrew's nightmares were withdrawal symptoms from his medication and were his hallucinations of the real Rachel Solano. Overwhelmed by his memories of what really happened, Andrew faints. He awakens in the hospital under the watch of Kali, Sheehan, and the warden, and the nurse who played Rachel. When questioned, he tells the truth in a coherent manner, satisfying the doctor. Kali notes that they had achieved the state nine months before, but Andrew regressed. He warns this will be Andrew's last chance, otherwise they will have to lobotomize him. Sometime later, Andrew relaxes on the hospital grounds with Sheehan, but calls him Chuck again, saying they must leave the island. Sheehan shakes his head to Kali. The warden gestures to the orderlies and Andrew is taken away to be lobotomized. Before leaving peacefully, Andrew asks Sheenan if it would be worse to live as a monster or to die as a good man. A stun Sheenan calls Andrew Teddy, but the latter does not respond to the name, suggesting he is still Andrew, but willingly wishes to be lobotomized. The camera pans to the lighthouse while Andrew is preparing to be lobotomized. The end. All right. Well, thanks for the plot, Ken. Let's dive right into Shutter Island here. Let's talk about some of the characters in this one. For me, the opening scene tells a lot about this movie, especially after you see the last scene in the movie. You really learn a lot about this first scene opening. What do you guys think? It's confusing a little bit. I mean, when you first see it the first time around, it, it makes total sense. You're coming in on the ferry. You get to find out that Chuck and Teddy, this is the first time that they're, they're working together. Chuck kind of idolizes Teddy. He tells him that he's kind of like this super cop. And he's like, what are you guys smoking up there in Portland? And he's like, I'm from Seattle. But we also see that Teddy is supposedly seasick and that they need to get to the island before the big storm. So everything seems normal enough on the boat. But then once they get off the boat and then they're surrounded by all those cops, that tells you there's something more going on here than just a regular investigation. Is there something significant about that scene that I missed? It happened twice in the other part, in the end of the movie, where he makes that Seattle-Portland reference is there something in there that i'm not catching ruffalo's character screws it up he makes a mistake at the end and that's another thing that just is a tell that he's playing a part rather than actually being a marshal i thought you were going to go in a different way with that question there eric i thought you were going to say as far as teddy's aversion to water because he has a constant aversion to water and that's because his subconscious has provided him with a thing that he can't stand water because of what happened but the first time you see the movie there is nothing on 
on the surface of that nope. first scene that would even begin to make you think anything untoward about anything that's going on because it's choppy water. Guys get seasick. Perfectly understandable. It's the reactions of the guard when he picks them up at the dock. They seem rehearsed. They seem tense. He doesn't seem like he's in an excited state that you would be if you were searching for somebody who's escaped. He doesn't have that affect about him that somebody's escaped and we got to find him. There's no desperation there. It's just a straightforward, you can tell he's not on board with whatever's going on here. And it feels off. Something's going on here that's not on the surface. I'll be perfectly honest. When I first saw the movie, it took me a while. About the time that he sees Rachel in that cave. That's when I started to wonder exactly what's going on here. Things aren't what they seem. Uh, It makes me even think about the ferry captain. He wants to get out of there because of the weather. But now we Mm -hmm. know it's because he's got possibly this insane patient on board and just wants to get him off the boat. Who's violent. This guy's a loose cannon. You don't know how he's going to react from minute to minute. Right, which is interesting with the free brain that he's given. But the guards with a gun set me off the first time I saw it. But the second thing that set me off was Chuck not able to give him the gun. And them focusing on that. I said to myself, there's got to be a reason here. You mean how he fumbled it? How he's fumbling and trying to give him the gun. Marshall should be able to do that, you know, in their sleep. I noticed that too. I think that I noticed that more than the people with the guns. That just threw me off. And then later find out it's because Chuck is not a real marshal. Whereas Teddy was actually a marshal in, in real life. So he would know how to do it because that was his life before this place. We've reviewed a lot of movies in the past that I think we can agree have to be seen more than once. And this is definitely one where you watch this movie all the way through and you're like, that's yeah, a pretty good movie. But if you watch it again, you are going to get so much more out of it. Whether or not you'll like it or not, I don't know, but you'll start tying everything together as you see it a second time. Me and Ted were talking about this offline, and it's a mixed bag because you like to put the pieces together, but then you're going to find pieces that just don't fit and just don't make any sense. We were talking about the cave where he meets the real Rachel. Yeah, let's talk about that. Okay, I've got a few opinions on that as well. The fact that he has to climb down the mountain cliff to get to her, first of all, is dangerous in the first place. So happens that this paper that tells him that there's a 67th patient just happens to fly in his direction and sticks to the cliff to the point where he can reach and grab it, that's just too much. That's overkill. Yeah, he's in orderly outfit scaling a mountain cliff in regular shoes and scaling back up after. Yes. And then how does she get in there? And how does she get out? Because she's going from location to location different every day. This kind of goes into the theory, and this is what we'll talk about a little later, of whether or not we believe that this movie is, in fact, a dream. I mean, there's many different aspects that you can go to. Has Teddy already been lobotomized prior? Is this a whole dream sequence? Or is this really played out by the doctors? Or is it a little bit of both, where maybe it's reality, and then he gets those headaches and he's given the pill? And maybe that pill kind of puts him into a dream sequence, kind of like a hybrid movie, because there's a lot of things in here that are kind of like, yeah, that's a little far-fetched. You see a flash of light, for instance, when he is in the cave and he falls asleep before he wakes up. There's this really bright light that comes on 
what is that bright light? We don't really know what that bright light is, but basically spent the night there. Or so he thinks. Or so he thinks. I mean, or she's, so still, he thinks. she's still right. there. That's, or so he thinks. And so that's the issue here is right. what is real and what is not real to us even because of the fact that some things are really far-fetched. So is that in his mind or is that really being played out? And I think that's where I struggle sometimes with this movie I love it the first time around because it's so interesting. But then when I'm watching it second, third time for enjoyment and for this podcast, I'm starting to go, "Eh, that's got to be a dream right there. That's got to be a figment of his imagination or something. Every movie you watch for our podcast is enjoyment. Every one? Every. Mm -hmm. Even Kevin Smith movies? Yeah, even. Wow. We're not going to go there. As far as what you guys are saying... I think there's a point. Teddy gets extremely agitated a couple of times, the point where he almost loses his temper. And he is starting to have the withdrawal symptoms from the Thorazine. I think that there are parts of this movie, and this is the part of the fun that I have going back through and rewatching and rewatching and rewatching. There are parts of this movie that are definitely dream sequences. I think that's part of what makes this a very good Martin Scorsese movie. I think he made a lot of really great decisions here because it is very difficult. If you're just watching it for the first time through, you won't pick up what's a dream and what's not. But it's as you go back through and you start putting the pieces of the puzzle together, that's when you start to go, okay, this was a dream. Because the whole Rachel thing in the cave references back to a conversation that Laetus had with Noyce about all of the conspiracy theories. And that's what caused him to lose it and almost beat Noyce to death. And we can talk about all the conspiracy theories that he's talking about there. But that's all a dream. We're going to take this at face value. That ben Kingsley's character, the Dr. Colley, and I have to be careful because it really comes close to Alistair Crowley. Dr. Colley is doing this revolutionary psychological experiment. We'll take that at face value. There's no way they would have allowed him to risk his life on that sheer cliff. Right. But here's the thing, too. Are there cliffs on the island? We really don't ever know because we don't ever really see them. I mean, we see them, but we only see them through Teddy's eyes. So how much of that is a psychological thing that his brain's putting in that this is unattainable thing? And the reason I say do the cliffs even exist, right after that first scene, when they land at the dock and the first lieutenant is there who's picking him up, he asks about the cave. And that officer, he gets this quizzical look on his face. Like, what is he talking about? And then that's when he goes into the whole thing that, you know, it's got poison oak, poison sumac. It's all fresh. And of course, and then there's thorns as big as my, you know what? It all seems fantastical. And it's like, maybe that's not there. And you can go into what the symbology of what a cave would be into the the mind. And that's where he's storing things in that cave. But I think they probably had to sedate him at some point because towards the end of the movie you see max von sydow's character who has a sedative in that needle ready to go he's going to give somebody and teddy's at that point he's in panic mode it would make sense that part is a dream it just didn't happen but his mind is trying to work it out so he creates this character in this cave that is the conversation that he had had with somebody in real life it's pretty interesting but these are all things that i love about the movie that causes me to want to watch and re-watch the movie in a long roundabout way i think the movie is insanely rewatchable 
And that's where I'm the opposite because of the fact that if I can't determine as a viewer what is real and what is not, I'm not sure where to go. If you're telling me that the clips are not real, then I'm struggling to even understand that part of the movie. Granted, we never see that lady in the cave again. That could have been a figure of his imagination. Here's the other thing, though, is when he comes back from all that the warden picks him up in the jeep right and wonders where he happens to be there but is asking where have you been so there is this indication that he's been gone for a certain amount of time what right. has he done did he pass out you know? or they want him to think he's been gone a certain amount of time maybe right either way let's take the fact like what ken says that he does get lost Okay, let's say he gets lost. I think he gets lost two different times. The first time he gets lost, he ends up in the cemetery. And that's the first time I think that Chuck is a figment of his imagination, too. Because when that same policeman who picked him up at the dock shines the light into the mausoleum, he says, Marshall, come out. He doesn't say, Marshalls, come out. That's a good point. That's where Teddy comes to and spills out all of the horrors that he encountered at Dachau. And do we think camp. that that is a dream, a dream no. sequence in itself? We no. think that's real. The World War II, PTSD, that yep. just set him off. Yeah. In my opinion, this is the first thing that broke Teddy. I think he's a legitimately broke human being. That's why he was a drinker and he was an alcoholic. Right. Everyone in 1950 was an alcoholic. That's how they announced that issue. And... Drink and smoke, drink and smoke. I thought it was interesting when we first meet him. We obviously, we did not make the connection, but he's, you know, thumbing through his jacket going, I thought I had my cigarettes with me. And he never has his own cigarettes. Of course, everyone's offering him cigarettes because he's obviously hooked on smokes as everyone in 1954 was. I didn't make the connection, obviously, till the cave. The cave clears up a lot of stuff that you're like, oh, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense now. Every time he has a cigarette to at the beginning of the movie, he never lights his own cigarette. And it's not until the therapy that Dr. Colley's doing starts to work, that's when he can start to light matches again. This is one of the amazing things about the human brain. The human brain is designed to protect ourselves. So in cases of severe trauma, it will cut it to protect. It seems like somebody else did something. And we know Teddy in this movie had severe trauma. Oh, yeah. We can't even begin to fathom the horrors that those men saw. I the... think this movie did a very good job of portraying those horrors. Oh, yeah. Of when they entered Dachau with the bodies all frozen together like that. I mean, that's a horrific image. Oh, yeah. I think Martin Scorsese did a really good job of portraying the flashbacks and the horror of what Teddy saw. Oh, 100%. And that experience forever changed him, for one. It caused him to become withdrawn, and he drank, and he ignored his wife, essentially, who was having major problems. But then the final break came when she killed his kids. It was too much for his brain to handle. Essentially, what the movie makes a case for is multiple personality disorder. Now, that has been argued back and forth through the psychological community since the book Sybil was written and published about whether or not it's multiple personality disorder is real. There is something to be said, though, about the brain protecting itself from trauma. I like the fact that both Dr. Crowley and Max Van Sito's character both talk about trauma a lot. And when they're talking to Teddy and talking about Teddy and how he's connected to Laetus and, well, that he is Laetus, it's all about overcoming trauma. 
And it's interesting about the both the doctors here. They are both of different schools of thought. So mm-hmm. I think here, yeah. you have Kali that really wants to give every chance possible to Teddy to bring him out of this. Whereas the other doctor is basically, let's just go into the brain, take care of it. Let's get it done. Because everybody really is not on board with this. It's just there's that respect for Kali. We listen to that little conversation before Chuck and Teddy come into the room where they're talking about what happens if there's a flood uh oh, and they chain them all down yeah he's yeah like, yeah he's like screw them it's like ivan drago if they die they die they yeah. die right <laughs> yeah, no you're, you're right there's definitely two schools of thought here and i we talked about this in prior movies the unreliable narrative i think plays a role in this too in talking with the scene about the drowning of the children which we were talking about earlier it's interesting because we're hearing this from the approach of Teddy. You know, how he walks in and he's like, you know, honey, I'm home. Everything is peachy keen and stuff. Do we really think that's the way it went down? That his wife was out there just sitting at the table and, you know, she killed the kid? I think so. To look at the chain of events. So he started drinking and being distant. So she tried to off herself in a fire. But it didn't work out. So he tried to resolve it by taking her away and putting her in. To a different setting. This setting is kind of secluded. It's far away from everybody. It is very secluded. Maybe at this juncture of their lives, he was trying to be reinvested a little bit. But she was already far gone. We don't know why she lost it. It might have been when he was in the war and she was wondering if he would ever come back. In fact, if we hear it, when the fake Rachel, the first Rachel who had no scars, no nothing when she came back, she said something to the fact that I buried you. You were dead. So who are you? Um, She says it in a different way, but she says, who are you? But she makes it sound like she had already had heard some maybe news that he had died or something like that. And then he came back. She might have had some messed up things going on in her head at that particular time. The drinking didn't help, but he blames himself, probably because he had to go to war, because he became a drinker and he became distant. And then he was still doing his job. When he does come in from the job, it was a hard day at work. They finally got the guy. I think it's real. Based on all the other dreams and how they talk about it at the end, I think that truly did happen that way. And she does say to him to end it for her. She wants to be released from all this. The reason why I bring it up, Ted, you alluded earlier, mental illness obviously is a a serious sickness, and this is something that she was probably battling for years and years, and obviously it got progressively worse, and him being at war did not help, and then probably being with the marshals, long days and nights, and she snapped. But for him to be, as they described, extremely dangerous and extremely violent, and one of the most dangerous and violent people on the island in the sanitarium, the one thing that struck me as odd is the way he killed her was very merciful in a way. You would think if you saw all three of your kids drowned and you're holding them and you come back, you would just lose it. I would think the way they're describing him is that he just like beat the living hell out of her, short of like cutting her up with an axe and just completely losing it. But he gave her a hug and then just put a bullet in her, which seems a little serene. That's the way we saw it. That's the way the narrator described it to us. And that was the video. It just seemed odd the way they were in my second watching of it. I'm like, this guy's supposed to be like the guy in the jail cell, really violent and really just crazy. And I don't know, maybe he lost it after that. That goes back to the last line of the movie, really, when he talks about being, you know, 
this terrible person or living this good person life. And he would rather have the memories of the good person. He's killed those soldiers, killed his wife. But we don't know all the stuff in between. But maybe he was violent. But then again, we're also looking at a different person. He doesn't believe that he is Laetus. He's built this different persona up of himself. And maybe that persona of him is violent. It's hard to tell because we don't get to see what happened before. We don't get to see what set him off. We hear what sets him off. We hear it's conversations that he has with George in the cell. And that throws me off a little bit too with George because sure. he, he talks about George as being somebody who got out and then killed three other people in a bar and then came back. And then we hear George in the cell in that conversation. And George is saying that it's his fault that he's back in, that he had gotten out. He says not, and that they're going to lobotomize him. That conversation kind of confused me a little bit. Where did this conversation truly happen? Because even George thinks that this conversation must have happened outside of Shutter Island because he says that he even got out and it was his fault that he's back in. To go back just a little bit, the unreliable narrative that Eric was talking about. We don't know how much his brain is still trying to protect him from what actually happened. Because it is a very serene scene that he comes home to. She's sitting there looking out over the lake and he ends up laying them with their hands on their chest. We'll never know exactly how that all went down. I mean, at the end of the day, there's part of him that still loved her. So it very possibly could have happened that way. We don't know if he's become violent because people question his alternate reality that his brain has created. Maybe that's what's causing the violence. That's a good point. But he's also been inundated with violence. They massacred the unarmed guards at Dachau. Then he's part of the marshal service, and he's tracking down, obviously, hardcore criminals that most likely have killed people. So he would have encountered murder scenes and things like that after. And he's imprisoned in cell block C with all these other murderers and psychopaths. Well, right. But we really don't know. We know he was a marshal after the war, but we really don't know what his history with the marshal service was. He could have been a decorated marshal, or he could have been just a desk jockey. We really don't know because he's building up that persona in his mind to make him sound like a great marshal who is known throughout the marshal agency as being a top agent. But the whole scene with him and his wife, didn't we have the same narrative problem in Taxi Driver with Travis Bickle and Mm -hmm. how his life all of a sudden at the end was all rosy? So this is a similar thing. And the use of the unreliable narrative or narrator is an interesting technique that I'm glad is not overused in Hollywood. You don't see it very often. And when it's done well, it's done extremely well. It makes the viewer all of a sudden dizzy in a way. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What did I just see? What did I just experience? And that's where I think that going back and rewatching it is extremely useful. As far as noise goes... Noyce never got off of Shutter Island because neither did Teddy. Noyce and Teddy were probably in Selbach B, and they were on the grounds together, and Noyce is an obvious delusional personality who is claiming all of these conspiracy theories, and then he made the mistake of calling Andrew Andrew, because his mind, he's not Andrew, he's Teddy, because his brain has protected himself and shut all of that out and has created this elaborate world. That's how they ended up in cell block C. 
And they're all completely whacked out on drugs. Oh, I oh mean, yeah. Completely. Just like yeah, us. Just, just like us, yeah. yeah. Why would they allow George and Andrew or Teddy together if he's so violent? Why would you even allow them to be alone together to allow that beat the crap out of them to even happen? And then part two of that question, how does George know what they're doing? How does he know the plan? And, and at times he's telling him, you need to let her go. He sounds sane for half the dream conversation. Sequence. I think that's part of a dream Is sequence. Is it part of the dream sequence? I think it's dream. Where? I think your first part, I would say at some point he had a complete mental breakdown. Someone called him Andrew. He flipped out. He beat the hell out of noise. At that point, they separated him. And but this was like that two point, weeks ago right, this happened. So. Maybe at that point, they're like, let's try one more time with the experiment. We'll give him one more try. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of that was dream sequence in the jail, obviously, because yeah. his wife shows up in the jail. They this could was... have been outside raking the grounds, because yeah. you see the, some of those people that are doing that, they're out there and they're raking the grounds, even though there's nothing to rake. They could have just been out there and they could have been talking amongst each other, and Noyce being a delusional person, he the... took Teddy and he set him on tilt. And the final straw was when he called him Laetus. Do you let your most dangerous patient work the grounds? That's the thing here. He's the most dangerous patient. He should be in the most secluded cell where nobody else can be near him if he's the most dangerous patient on the island. That's just how I look at it. Those people that are in cell block C don't seem to be getting the psychiatric one-on-one help. They seem to just be getting Thorzine up the wazoo. I'm thinking that Teddy, he may have had outbursts, as some mental patients are prone to do. I think where it turned violent is when Noyce called him Teddy. We know that he's been getting one-on-one psychiatric help from Mark Ruffalo's character, Chuck. We know that for a fact. And like I said, it doesn't appear by the look of things. The people that are there in Cell Block C are kind of the quote-unquote forgotten people. They go there and they're in a hole, essentially. Those are people who can't ever be brought back. They're done. Well, I mean, and... if that's the case, then why would they even bother with Teddy even going through this elaborate type of... Because it is very elaborate. Because I mean, we're... what Collie's trying to do, he's trying to get back reality from somebody who has multiple personality disorder. And he's trying to fit Teddy back. Because I think Collie actually believes that he can repair Teddy. And the only way that he would have thought that would have been through the one-on-one psychiatric help with Chuck. They even said they did reset him once. Right. But he relapsed right, right back. I'm pretty sure when they fixed him, he wasn't this violent person. His brain was still trying to protect him from all of those horrors he had seen, and ultimately he did by murdering his wife. And I think this goes back to the earlier question about what kind of man he was. I think they choose him here because I think his narrative is actually true. We don't hear at the end when the doctor is describing everything that happened to him that he was a wife beater or that he was this violent guy before they came into Shutter Island. It sounds There's like a lot of backstory is still wide open. It's wide open, but the doctor makes it sound like that he's a good man that did a bad thing because of what his wife did to his kids. Yeah. And at no time did we hear the doctor say, you did all this, this, and this to your wife and kids. He focuses on the fact that it was just one act. So I think the narrative isn't too far away from the truth because everybody else around him seems to support that. 
Well, let's think about this. Your wife kills your children. You kill your wife. Obviously, you're going to go to jail, right? You're not going to go to a psychiatric hospital. You're going to go to jail. So he goes to jail first. Something happens in jail, obviously, with probably the multiple personalities, post-traumatic stress disorder, all the things that obviously gets him transferred from wherever jail he was to Shutter Island, where this doctor probably takes a liking to him, you know, with his past history and maybe his one-on-ones that he has that he thinks he can bring him back. In 1954, when there were still government-funded psychiatric institutions, they would have been more apt to send him to a psychiatric facility than straight to jail. Nowadays, with uh, the legal interpretation of what it means to be insane or the insanity defense, the insanity defense has basically been written out of existence because the height that you have to jump over to get it is almost unachievable. So you think he, he they, went to Shutter Island right off the bat? Yes. I I believe so, because the deterioration of the insanity defense, even if you look at somebody like Mark David Chapman, who assassinated John Lennon, he was not sent to jail. He was sent to a psychiatric facility. That's a good Um, point. He was. And you look at John Hinckley Jr., who shot President Reagan. He was also sent to a mental facility. They called him criminally insane. Now, now Sirhan Sirhan paroled. His case is interesting because there, of course, are conspiracies all over about the RFK assassination, as is there was with his brother, John Kennedy. But It's a whole other podcast. But he was never sent to a psychiatric facility. No, he, he went was, to jail because it's premeditated. He was, yeah, he was in maximum security at Folsom. I, I can't believe he's still alive, to be honest. He was really yeah, young, though, wasn't he? He must, he must have been like 18 or Late 17 teens, early 20s, yeah. I agree. I rethink that. Initially, was thinking maybe that uh, this character was transferred somewhere else and then went to Shutter Island. But now you've converted me that he initially was sent to the island. As far as modern day, yeah, you're exactly right. He goes into the for-profit jail system and is never heard from again. Because basically the new legal definition of the insanity defense is you have to have literally no idea that you are on planet Earth, that you believe that you're on planet X and you're smearing poop all over yourself after you kill somebody. That's how you're going to get the insanity defense. It's that high of a bar. But back then, they would have definitely have sent him to some sort of facility. John Hinckley Jr. has supervised visits with his parents now. Didn't his mom just die? Yeah, I think so. And she was the reason why he was getting weekend passes, which is absolutely crazy if you think about it. Crazy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Don't yeah. say crazy. <laughs> right. What they would have seen this as the stressors of the situation that he found himself in seeing his kids die. Then killing his wife, he just lost it. He lost it. He snapped. Lost all sanity. And also, too, one of the things that would have been taken into consideration, and it is sort of taken into consideration now in the sentencing phase, what they would have done and what they still do to a certain extent today is they would have looked at his history. They would have went back to his military records. They would have seen that he would have been at Dachau and that he would have been part of the liberation of of the camp. And then possibly a decorated marshal. Exactly. Service. He would definitely have been right into a hospital of some sort for a lengthy period of time until he was deemed fit to go back. Which is what Kali thought could be possible. Max von Sydow's character doesn't believe that he is. And that's a common... I would have liked to seen more of his character in this movie. Yeah. Like Ken said, they, they represent two different streams of thought in the psychiatric community, which is something that's constantly being waged in that community. Because back then, they were talking about going in through the eye. Yeah. 
Yeah, weird. That was really happening. That was 50s. Yeah, yeah. it was crazy. In fact, we were talking about the Kennedys, one of the Kennedy daughters. I was just going to say one of the Kennedy daughters had a lobotomy. Was it Rose? Yeah. It was one of the youngest daughters. The mom? Rose Kennedy? No, no, No. it was one of the youngest daughters. Yeah, I think her name was Rose. One of JFK's daughters? Uh, Sisters. Oh, his sister. One of his sisters. Yeah. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Like early on or recently? No, early on. on. Like back in the they, 50s. Jeez. They wanted to keep it under wraps because of the political uh, ramifications. Oh, yeah. Right. yeah oh, the political yeah. No, the Kennedys yeah. were royalty. All right. She was kept at the compound and really never let out, oh, okay. essentially. She was kind of the hidden secret. Ted, later on in life, talked about her quite a bit. I don't know exactly the whole story behind that, but the death of the oldest son in World War II, he's, he was a pilot, that played something into that as well. My wife loved Dr. Demento, and there's a song that's from the late 50s, early 60s. The title of the song is, I'd rather have a bottle in front of me than a frontal lobotomy. <laughs> and it's like a comedy song. This is a Dr. real Demento. thing. Dr. Demento. Yeah. Yeah, mm. this is, no, this is real stuff. It's pretty. It's like one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Exactly. Yeah. Going back to the lovely movie here and talking about all the people that had to be a part of this sham or this treatment with all the doctors and nurses and the orderlies. You could tell that some of the nurses weren't on board with this. They weren't very happy to have to do this. I thought that was the best part of this ruse is the fact that part of this group didn't want to be part of it. You had that one nurse. She was just being a total biatch about everything. But I loved her because she's just like, you know, she had this needle in front of her and I think she was just waiting to stick him. Yeah. She was just mm-hmm. done with this. I really enjoyed that. I loved looking at their reactions. They're all sitting there and he's trying to interrogate them all and they're just kind of like whatever, whatever. dude. Yeah. yeah. Good point. They yeah. are so not on board and you're exactly right Ken. That's one of the biggest things that I really liked too. That you the, catch in the second watch obviously. Part See. even on the first watch and this is another thing that kind of put my spidey senses going. When they're supposed to be quote unquote looking for Rachel right? and they think that she might have quote unquote drowned and all of those cops are just sitting there throwing rocks into the water yeah. and they're sitting <laughs> so, there know. and nobody's really looking at all. A hundred percent you're right Ken. That's one of the things had they played it like everybody's gung-ho about it and they're all committed to the bit it would have come off really cheesy some of those orderlies may have been hurt by him he might have pushed some of those nurses or been mean to those nurses and they're like screw this he might have had some great relationships like you had the one orderly that was really nice to him maybe yes Maybe he had a really good relationship with that orderly. And then you had patients. So you had the patient that wrote run. Maybe Mm -hmm. he had a good relationship with that patient. That was the only thing that threw me off a little bit was the patients and being coached and relying on them to do their parts. That wouldn't, I'm not sure how that really. Are we sure they were even patients? They could have been. I think those two people were, especially the first guy. I think he is cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Yeah. When he comes back in and he's asking where his partner is and they're saying, well, you don't have a partner she is there and she's yeah. looking like she's losing yeah. it right there and then yeah and you want to hear the conversations in the background because there's conversations going around them that you really need to focus on to find out what they're talking about people are just done with this and they want it to be over with then you just happen to have this storm so the question here is would you keep on doing this ruse during a massive hurricane i would think that you would say you know what we need to stop this right now and we're going to do this at a later time where our lives are not in danger 
That part of it was kind of weird that they continued to move forward. He's in the mausoleum in this tropical storm. You're risking his life because he could seriously gotten hurt. I think they didn't know where he was. I think that he had just ran off. That's when you cut it off, though. That's when you say, you know what? The weather is so crazy right now. We need to really hold back and not do this right now. And that's why I brought up that point as one of the first times I wondered when Chuck came in and out of the dream. Because I wonder if they waited until the, the storm was over to essentially wake him back up and get him back off of the sedatives. Because that light is brighter than what a car light should be. Kind of like that light that I talked about earlier when he's laying down in the cave it's kind of a similar type of bright light so i'm wondering if you're correct about that being a dream sequence how about a uh, a fluorescent light from lying down on a table or in a bed we can argue if the cave scene is real like for example if they had some type of internal entrance in and out of the cave they brought her in they brought her out she's a player they brought him in they brought him out of sedation and now he's waking up it seems like towards the end like before the cave where you have Chuck trying to show him that there is a 67th patient and still trying to figure out what one of four is, but we can talk about that if you guys know what that is in a second. But trying to show him, and and Teddy doesn't want to have anything to do with that paper. And that's probably because he doesn't want this to end. He wants this to be an ongoing investigation because once it's over, he has to face reality. And so I'm thinking they're trying to push that the place is doing something wrong they want him to find something they want him to expose him so he finishes out his investigation because then it's over and then he might have to face reality i think there's that push there talking through all of this something just came to my mind when he enters into the mausoleum if he's escaped maybe the storm is real and he got hit by a branch and the next time that he's actually conscious is when the warden finds him after the quote-unquote cave scene. Where did he get the cut? I think it was from the fight with Noise. He has that at the very beginning of the... At the very um, beginning? Okay. Very beginning of the movie. What if that's the case? And what if he's just been knocked out for that whole period of time? And because it's right after he gets brought back by the warden, that's when Kali calls the whole thing off. And it's like, we're, this is done. Maybe that's something to think about as well. That's a good theory. So many theories in this one. Oh, yeah. I mean, and that's part of the greatness of film noir. It leaves so much up for interpretation and gauges the viewer to think about what's going on and what the motives are. We had mentioned when we were talking before we started recording, very Hitchcockian. Hitchcock was a master of the film noir style. He's one of them. It's very that. It has those ominous tones to it. little Kubrick in there, too. That's another thing, because most of the underlying score was extra takes from The Shining. So you get a lot of those sharps and flats. Nothing's really on tone. The score here is brilliant. It plays like a real film noir score. The score makes it even feel even more like a horror story. It gives that ominous feel. I think it was me and you, Ted, that were talking offline thinking that I felt this was like The Shining, probably because of the music, the cinematography here. This is shot beautifully. This is, is a beautiful really looking good. movie. Everything visually was wonderful. It was vibrant. Even when it was dark and gloomy, it, it just had this feel to it that it was inviting that I wanted to continue to watch it. I think his movies in general are really shot beautifully. But this one, for me, is different maybe because he doesn't do these type of movies. I don't understand why this is the only one, at least that I've seen of his, of this genre. 
the suspenseful thriller. Why doesn't he do more of this? Because I think he's really good at it. I, about I, Pacific well, Heights. See, I haven't seen Pacific Heights, so you guys could probably enlighten me if that's... This is much better. <laughs> this, this is much better. better. His version of Cape Fear falls a little bit short. In my opinion, this is shot so much better. Yeah. The acting here is much better. And that's saying a lot when you have Nick Nolte and Robert De Niro as your two leads. And Jessica Lange. Je- yeah, and Jessica Lange, too. Cape Fear was hard because the original was so good. Yeah. Even though you know all of who the players are at Cape Fear... The original played perfect, in my opinion, with Robert Mitchum and I think Gregory Peck. Where the original plays that you start to wonder at the end, as they're going on, does Gregory Peck just have it out for this guy? Or is this guy really terrorizing people? Whereas Scorsese's Cape Fear, there is zero doubt that robert de niro's character is a monster he is after nick nolte and his whole family and he has that creepy scene with juliette lewis that is just as cringeworthy there's something about that scene with robert de niro that is extremely off-putting and it's probably the best part of that whole movie ironically enough because that's where everything doesn't feel like you've seen it before what you already had stated, though, before about the acting, I think that's where that Cape Fear really yes. fails, is the acting is too over the top in a lot of cases, especially Nick Nolte. I don't like his performance in that at all. And that's where this actually movie succeeds. Leonardo DiCaprio is beautiful in this movie. I love his performance here. And then you have all the supporting cast. They don't have huge parts, but when they're on screen... They're delivering solid performances. And I think that's what you're lacking in that Cape Fear one. And I don't know where Scorsese was during the filming of that. Then see how the bad acting was. You know what the interesting thing about Cape Fear is, is that was Gregory Peck's last role. Mm-hmm. It was his last theatrical role, and Robert Mitchum was in it, too, and Martin Balsam. Yeah, for but... the life of me, I don't know why he went <laughs> to remake it, but in my opinion, it's not as good as Shutter Island. And, Ken, I think you hit a major point here. The acting here is superb. You have Mark Ruffalo at this point of his career in 2010. He's just starting to find himself and to become the brilliant actor that he is today. DiCaprio hits this out of the park, but it's all of those bit players. And to say that they're bit is kind of a ridiculous thing. All of these people hit this out of the park. Sir Ben Kingsley, Max von Sydow, Jackie Earl Haley. These are superior actors. We're talking at the height of their craft. What they do is when they're on screen, they maximize their minutes. And that's working up to the character and not just being a character. And we've discussed this in the previous episodes, the relationship with Scorsese and DiCaprio. Scorsese knows how to get what he needs out of DiCaprio. They seem to have this understanding. And that's what's so great about Scorsese. And that's why he probably picks De Niro and then moves on to DiCaprio. He finds people that are on the same wavelength as him. De Niro and and DiCaprio are great actors in their own right, but if you watch them outside of Scorsese movies, I feel like there is a little bit of a a downgrade compared to them in Scorsese films. Not in every film, Godfather, for instance, and DiCaprio was brilliant in What's Eating Gilbert Grape. The Revenant. But but by that time he did Revenant, though, he had already done so many movies with Martin Scorsese that allowed to make their craft even better. De Niro's great in Godfather, too, but I feel like Scorsese takes 
takes that and is able to even elevate that, even that's a great performance. But I still argue that Robert De Niro's greatest performance, in my opinion, is Taxi Driver. Can't argue with you. And I think that comes from Scorsese. And that's probably why Cape Fear didn't work out. Those people couldn't mesh with Scorsese. They're great actors, don't get me wrong. They just are not Scorsese actors. In the previous episode with The Wolf of Wall Street, the Jonah Hill took base pay to work with Scorsese. In Shutter Island, you have a similar situation. I don't know what the pay was, but essentially Mark Ruffalo wrote Martin Scorsese like a two-page letter begging him to work with him. And it was essentially a fan letter. Dearest Martin. Best wishes. Best wishes always. All is well. We have to touch on the last scene. That encapsulates the quote that I think harkens back to another quote from somebody else from World War II, and I'll see what you guys think. This place makes me wonder, which would be worse, to live as a monster or to die as a good man? It's an interesting thought. I think it has an an interesting parallel as far as World War II goes to, is it better to live one day as a lion or multiple days as a sheep? That quote is attributed to Benito Mussolini. Nice. Ironically enough. Remember, everybody, when you're using it's better to live one day as a lion than multiple days as a sheep, that you're actually quoting a dictator. An Italian fascist. Yeah. yeah, It has a little bit of that in it. It's, It's an interesting dilemma that's posed. I don't know. Is it better to live your life as truthful to yourself, even though you're a monster, or to alter yourself to make you think that you're a good man? I don't know. The right answer to that. I think that quote is in all of us, because we all look at ourselves and we try to make ourselves look the best that we can. Other people look at us differently. Some people look at me as one way and some other people look at me as another. Some people might think I'm a nice guy. Other people might think I'm a jerk. It's all in the eye of the beholder. So I think in our lives, we want to be that person that is a good person. Most of us, I think in general, want to be that person. I love this line. I think it's a great line, but it also makes me wish that this line isn't said because I feel like this line basically says to me that he did all this stuff. He now knows who he is and he chooses suicide. That is the big question is like, okay, he's gotten the treatment. It's reverted back. He falls back into place. He has this moment of clarity or does he? And he's thinking to myself, you know what? I'm just going to fall right back into this monster. I know I'm a good guy for now. Let's just end it. I think that's what it is because he knows if it doesn't work this time that they have to lobotomize him. Chuck's character, or the doctor, whatever you want to call him at this particular point, when he's walking away, calls him out by Teddy. And he doesn't yeah. respond right, because right. he's no longer Teddy. Right. He knows who he is. And I think he now wants to just end it because he doesn't want to be either person anymore. He doesn't right, want yeah. to live the fake life anymore. And what probably happened previously was the same thing. But the, there wasn't the option of the lobotomy. Now he has this third option. The other two options was accept what you did and move on. Or the other option was to revert back to the, the character that you created. Now you have the third option, which is to be lobotomized, which is basically another form of Well, suicide. the doctor told him, he said, look, this is the last time we're doing this. Right. If it doesn't work, then we have to take ulterior measures. I think maybe that first time that wasn't an option, but now he's like, look, if it doesn't work this time, we're done. Right. And he's accepting that. He's willing to take that because the hurt is so bad from what he has done. He's killed his wife. His kids are dead, especially his focus on his daughter. 
And he participated in the execution of unarmed combatants. There's just so much there. And then we talked about that fire. And I think he had mentioned in that fire that other people had died. Mm -hmm. Maybe that is on his conscience as well. There's just so much going on that at the end, he's just, I'm done. I I love the ending. I love that quote. In a sense, I love this ending. And I think it ties everything up. And I'm very happy about it. And then on the second end, I don't like the, the quote because I feel like it does end it for me instead of questioning what really happened. I think I know what happened. And I'd rather be left with me questioning it. But I think I I have a definite that he went through all this. He killed his wife. They've been trying to get him right. They actually succeeded. Now, the question here is, now that the doctor, he's got to know he's not Teddy anymore because of how he responds because of that line. And he doesn't respond to Teddy when he's walking away. Does he say, hey, guys, it worked. Let's not lobotomize. Or he's like, you know what? We're going to lobotomize him because he feels bad for him and he's going to let him do it because he doesn't want him to have to deal with the other two options. I think that he's allowing him to make the choice for himself. Right. His brain can't protect himself anymore because they've stripped down that wall and he can't hide behind another persona anymore. And he has to come to terms with what happened. He simply can't. And that's an inherently very sad, very traumatic. And it's traumatic for the viewer. There's trauma there for the viewer as well. Because you feel bad when he makes that realization and he comes to terms with everything. That's heartbreaking. You like him. Yeah. Leonardo DiCaprio does a great job of taking guys that we are not supposed to like and make us like them. We see that in The Wolf of Wall Street guy who has killed his wife you're not supposed to like a guy like that but everything he's gone through the way he battles through all that and creates this new persona and is fighting through that persona you want all this to be real for him you want him to like expose them and he wins at the end you want that for him and then when at the end when you realize that he is a broken man that is now faced with this end of his life his mortal reality yeah you just feel for him and that's why i think this might be one of leonardo dicaprio's best performances i can argue with you that this might be his best performance Mm. it's i mean he holds this whole movie by himself yeah that he does i wouldn't say it's his best performance but he definitely is the without a doubt the main character hands down he doesn't have to rely on anybody else to uplift his character whereas in the wolf of wall street you have all these amazing characters that you talked about on our previous episode that just enhance the film that just make it great but in this performance i I like that i like that when you have more people sure there's a bigger load on dicaprio's shoulders in this film i think there is than other films and i think he rises is above you could make the argument that there's other ones i love him in gangs of new york as well and i already said that what's eating gilbert great he does a great job there but here and we know titanic's your favorite movie oh, of all time so oh, mm-hmm. yeah. it is actually that yeah. one's grown on me a little bit i actually bought blu-ray when i told ted ted's like what you bought yeah. I, I blame it on that titanic exhibit i saw in the tennessee but that's where i'm at with this Honestly, you guys wrapped it up so well. There's not much more I can add to it. The one thing that I really love about the ending of this movie, it's such a simple gesture, but it it just says so much about the movie is when he's talking to Ruffalo's character and Ruffalo turns to the doctor and just shakes his head simply. Nope, just shakes his head. At that point, I was like, oh, it just is such a a symbolic ending to the movie for me. That's really all I have to say on it. You guys did a hell of a job wrapping it up there. 
Let's go into some of these reviews. I think we're going to have some uh, real positive ones. I'm going to go with Ken. What's your review of Shutter Island? As I stated at the beginning of this podcast, more of my wheelhouse as far as the type of movie that I like to watch. I've enjoyed Martin Scorsese films in general, but some of the subject matter sometimes is a little too risque or it's just not something that I'm interested in. This is Alfred Hitchcock-like, which I really enjoy Alfred Hitchcock. This is more like The Shining of Stanley Kubrick's, which when we reviewed it last year, I enjoyed immensely as well. I wouldn't say I'm par with The Shining, but at moments it's really close. There are some questionable things here that make you ask, this is a dream sequence. Well, I need a little bit more definitive answers if this is a dream sequence or if this is actually reality. That's where the movie confuses me just a tad. Is it a deal breaker? Heck no, because the performances here and the dialogue. The dialogue is great. I love the dialogue here. The conversations that they're having here are great. I didn't talk about Ben Kingsley perfectly as the doctor. Everybody that is cast in the roles are perfectly cast here. They're minor roles, but at the same time, they are really well done. The score, as we stated, very well done. It is very Hitchcock, The Shining-esque type of scores. And there are some legitimate things that maybe actually jump out of my seat a little bit here and there. I think the first watch is amazing. The second watch and the third watch I think it depends on where your mind is at at the time. What do you want to do with this film? Do you want to enhance it or do you want to pick it apart? I say look for enhancing it because if you enhance it, you're going to immensely enjoy this film even more. As far as a final grade on this movie, this one's a hard one for me to grade. I'm in between a B and a B plus right here. So I'm probably leaning more towards the B plus than I am a B here. So that's where I'm going to end up right here between a B and a B plus more on the B plus side. Well played. How about you, Teddy? What are your thoughts on Shutter Island? It's no secret that Martin Scorsese, I am a huge fan of his. and This movie is no different than a lot of his other movies for me. I think this is why he's a Mount Rushmore type of director. He's one of the best that's ever done it. Because he makes movies that they're not only rewatchable, but they're enjoyable. And this movie fits all of those bills. And this is extremely well acted and directed. And I know somebody had mentioned before the cinematography. It's just beautifully shot. This was the last movie of Scorsese's that was shot entirely on film. There's something to be said about shooting a movie on film rather than digitally. I don't know, there's just something more organic about it, in my opinion. The characters here are extremely relatable, and you like their story. I understand that some people might have a problem with the plot and coming to terms with it. Plot's not for everybody. This isn't a happy story. It's very film noir. It's a good callback to the films of Hitchcock and those black and white movies from the late 50s, the film noir style. It's wonderfully done that way. This is a movie that I'll rewatch time and time again. To be honest, I had fallen away from the movie until I started doing the research from it, and it's one that I will be putting in again and again after this. I have no reason for why I had fallen away from it, because I do and thoroughly enjoy it. This movie for me is a solid B+. That's not a, a knock on it in any way. This falls right into that category. This is a sweet spot for me. Martin Scorsese is a storyteller, and this is a great story. That's the highest praise I think anybody can ever give a director. 
All right. Well, for me, obviously, Martin Scorsese is my director that I pick. So obviously, I like him as a director. If you've been listening to any of our podcasts in the past, you know that myself, I am very big into cinematography. And this movie has incredible cinematography. And that was a great point that Ted brought up without this being his last movie filmed uh, actually on film, which I think is very sad that that has gone away. But I do respect that it had to. But I think you can tell the difference. You really can. I really love the cinematography on this and that it was an actual film movie. I think the supporting cast in this movie is incredible. I think uh, that every actor has played their part extremely well. This is obviously a Leonardo DiCaprio movie. This is one where he has this movie on his shoulders. It either sinks or swims with Leonardo DiCaprio as the lead. And obviously, in my opinion, it swims and it swims very well. Like Ted, I have also fallen away from this movie. I probably haven't seen this movie in five or six years. And when I put it in for the first time about two weeks ago, I was like, oh yeah, this this is a good movie. I really enjoyed it. I put it in a second time and I went, wow, this is a really good movie. And then I watched it a third time and I went, this is really an incredible movie. There's very few things that I could say bad about this movie. I really can't think of anything. It's just a personal choice that I don't give it an A. An A rating is really for movies that are just, you know, they hit me hard. And there's very little, if anything, I can say bad about them. And this movie falls into that category. But in my heart, I just can't give it that full A. Like you guys, I'm going to fall in line. I give it a, a B plus. It's like Ken. It's more like a B B plus. It's not an A movie, but damn it, it's it's right there. It's definitely one you need to watch more than once. And if you are a person that likes movies and do not mind watching a movie three times, this will be right up your alley. But if you're watching it for the first time and one time only, you're going to miss so much about this movie. And I think one of the great things about this movie is that it leaves us guessing. And it leaves all these open questions about what was reality and what is a dream scene and what is actually taking place in this movie in the past and and the current there's just so many unanswered questions that leave us chatting like we're doing now about this movie for an hour or a little over an hour we've been talking about this movie and there's so many open questions we can ask for me it's a b plus all the way what is our next movie ted i think before i choose my kevin smith movie i think that i'm gonna jump and pick my stanley kubrick movie and the movie that i'm gonna choose is a movie that i had regrettably had to leave off of the four that i had chosen because it ranks right up there with my most favorite stanley kubrick movies and that's a clockwork orange I had a feeling you'd pick that. To let everybody know there in podcast land, what we're doing here is we're doing a series called Revisited. So we did four movies already from all our other directors. This was our fifth one for Martin Scorsese. So moving forward for the rest of the season, we're going to revisit each one of our directors and do one more movie from them. And so Ted's going to be up next. And he had a choice between Kevin Smith, which was one of our first directors, or going with Stanley Kubrick. And he's going with Stanley Kubrick's a Clockwork Orange. Yes, it's definitely one of my favorite movies of all time. Boy, I'm looking forward to watching that one again. That's a movie I haven't seen in a long, <laughs> long time. 
And I remember the last time I saw that one. I was a yeah, was it an was eye opener? It, was it an illegal version of the VHS? It you wasn't know? available on VHS for a long time. I got to plead ignorance on this one, Jerry. I don't know. All right. Well, that's all the time we have now. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. Ted, where can they find us on the World Wide Web? <laughs> on Twitter, you can find us at the movie underscore marquee with two E's. Cool. And Ken? You can also find us on Facebook, The Movie Marquee. Recently, we asked a question on our Facebook page. It's based on the fact that we had just done The Color of Money with Tom Cruise. And we asked, what was your favorite Tom Cruise movie? Here's some responses that we got from you. Night and Day, A Few Good Men, Magnolia, First Mission Impossible, Days of Thunder. That's a guilty pleasure for me. An American Maid. Somebody said The Firm, but then they backed off on that as a joke and said, yeah. Yeah, because American Maid is an interesting movie. I I do own a copy of that, and I think it's actually, it's pretty cool. One person said, I like Tom Cruise movies, even though he's totally insane. That's true. true. Always the same person in every movie. Nobody put Top Gun, did they? Somebody said that they watched a lot of Top Gun and A Few Good Men, but when it came down to it all, they went with Days of Thunder. Okay. Just curiosity, Ted, mm-hmm. what is your favorite Tom Cruise movie? I know what mine is. What is yours? Is is the Mission Impossible, the first Mission one. Impossible. What is yours? Yeah. My, mine's a few good men. Oh, I should have known that. Mine is Risky Business. That's oh, just because business. of Rebecca DeMorey. Love Risky Business. <laughs> no, and because Booker's in it. Booker's. So That's when why. so when Jennifer's Joel. way, do you put your white shirt on, button down shirt? Oh yeah, sing a little Bob Seger. Oh yeah, sing some Bob Seger. All right, playing with the that's, egg. Oh yeah, that's yeah, that's, that's cool. Guys got to do what a guy's got to do. Yeah, that's true. Taking my push out. Absolutely. Exactly. All right. That's all we've got for now, folks. We'll see you uh, next episode. Have a good one. See you at the movies. See you next time at the movie marquee. Mm-hmm.